Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's good, Internet? It is Austin Walker here for a special episode of Waypoint Radio. I'm here to talk today with uh, Evan Husney. Husney? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. We've known each other for years now, and I've never asked because I'm a bad friend. Uh, you are I'm not even the- sure if that's right. But. <laughs> it's probably I probably did the first time we we spoke. I was like, "Husney, I, I read it on an email." Um, <laughs> you are a producer and the co-creator of Dark Side of the Ring, a new docu series that's running currently on Viceland. I think by the time people hear this, the first three episodes will have come out. Um, uh, it is a series. You know, I'll let you pitch it because because Evan, you have been pitching me this series <laughs> for literally eighteen months. On Probably. and off, two two years we've been talking about this thing. Yeah, uh, I'm super excited for people to, to be watching it now. Uh, but I want you to to tell the audience what it is. Yeah, well, uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, this has been uh, a documentary series passion project for me for several years now. Um, but basically, what it is is it's it's a six part documentary series that kind of uncovers. Um, a lot of uh, the most infamous stories in the world of 80s, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s professional wrestling, um, as well as some, you know, extremely underreported controversial stories. Right. Some, some are even true crime in nature. Um, I mean, the first so, one, right, is definitely yeah. you, you, the first episode you put out was the the death of Bruiser Brody, uh, a, a remarkable uh, pro wrestler from the 70s and 80s whose uh, influence is really widely felt in terms of being a kind of uh, leader in some some what I guess today you would have or in the 90s would have said like hardcore wrestling. Like you don't get ECW, you don't get Mankind, <laughs> you don't get any of that without someone like Bruiser Brody really living it and uh, and showing it, uh, you know, in, in his performance in a way that was like very uh, committed um, and mm-hmm. dies in under mysterious circumstances uh, while out of the country. And uh, I think that episode was a fantastic opener. Um, and I, I, you know, it, it shocked me a little bit, even though I knew what the project was, how bought in I would even though I knew what the, the project was and basically knew parts of that story the ways in which you're you and the crew are able to tell these stories the access that you have it's been really impressive thank you so much uh yeah the the Bruiser Brody episode was actually the very first episode that we shot for the series that was the pilot episode if you will the yeah, one yeah. that 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 sort of launched it all and and for us that's the first story that we really connected with and saw that it really could be like, you know, here's an hour long series and this could be the, you know, kind of the, um, the basis of the whole, you know, concept of the show. And, uh, the whole genesis of it really started with me and my best friend, Jason Eisner, who directed all the episodes, Mm -hmm. excuse me. And, and we just met about like, we met 10 years ago at Sundance. He's a, he's a feature filmmaker. He made Hobo with a Shotgun. If you remember that film. Yeah. 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 And, um, 
we bonded over our, our, our love of wrestling and uh, being fans when we were kids, five, six years old. And we got back into it together. Like we got back into wrestling together at that time. And uh, we just decided to go down these YouTube holes and watch all these old matches and really mm-hmm. discover like the territory era, which is like the sort of era before the WWF took over everything. Yeah. And we started literally to watch- by buying up those territories, right? Like that exactly. is exactly, I think that's part of the thing that ends up being really interesting about watching these is, you know, uh, like you, I grew up with wrestling like you years later, I would go back to see the stuff before I was born. You know, I'm 33 now, which means I was like perfectly in the right age for the kind of mm-hmm. end of the kind of golden era of WWF. The, the kind of like, you know, I was, I was watching, you know, the, 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 the Montreal screw drop. Uh, you know what I mean? And Amazing. then it was really in my, in my prime as a fan, uh, for the attitude era. Right. Um, but then as you get older, you go like, wait a second, wrestling is worldwide. It is not just, uh, in the States, not just mm-hmm. in Canada, it is worldwide. And then also it, it's been going for a long time. And in the, the, before the, the time that I grew up, like, Hey, there were, uh, all of these different organizations that had different wrestlers who moved between the organizations that had local, you know, weird connections to local politics and and you know <laughs> local yeah. uh, corporations and local business, right? Obviously, and mm-hmm. and there are families that are important, and all that stuff is stuff that you kind of get by osmosis. But one of the things I like about Dark Side of the Ring is, you know, you're not you're not out to make a a, a documentary series that is like here is what wrestling is. But you can pick up a lot of that stuff along the way because yep. to tell these stories, you have to bring the viewer into uh, – to understand what the, what that process in history was, you know? Exactly. And and that was by design too. Like we uh, wanted the show to be accessible to people who aren't, you know, hardcore wrestling obsessives. We wanted this to be something that, you know, you like – like if you're a fan, you could finally show – you know, your family member, significant other, friend, or what what have you, and, and have them understand why you love this and why it's so captivating. And uh, these stories that we cover are stories that are human stories uh, above anything else. So, yeah. you know, they're not really about, they are about wrestling, but they're not at the same time. Right. Well, again, they're, they are, I, you know, what I think it ends up doing is, I, I think that the AV Club was like, I don't know, do you, I'm sure you've, you've are you the sort of person who's like, I'm going to see all of the headlines about the thing I've worked on? Or are you the type of person who's like, I'm going to pretend this didn't even happen. <laughs> I'm just going to look away. It depends. I mean, every time, you know, you do something and there's reviews, you're always kind of like, all right, let's see what they said. Um, right. You know, and, 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 and Jason's way more used to that than I am with having sure, done sure. more features and well, stuff. But yeah. So the AV Club's head is like, what's fake is real and vice versa in wrestling docuseries Dark Side of the Ring. And it opens as a, it's a piece by Randall Colburn and, and it opens like wrestling isn't fake because it's not real. Right. right. Um, and and the the ways in which the show gets at the blurry lines between performance and like identity or selfhood, the ways in which it gets at the blurry lines between or or the non-existent difference between like something being something being scripted doesn't make it fake in the right. way that people like to think it is. But likewise, nor does it make it pure competition. There is something, there is this other category of of what's happening here. And it's a very it's a category that has a human it's not like you step in the ring and whatever happens in the ring doesn't matter right mm-hmm. it's not like you step in front of the camera and because you're performing that performance doesn't have 
a cost or doesn't have uh, uh, you know a relationship to your relationships. It extremely does, um, and you really are able to tell those stories partially because you get access to people who can tell those stories firsthand, uh, firsthand, and literally on their bodies you can see what the cost of their careers have been. <laughs> um, what was it like to talk to people like Abdul the Butcher, like oh. you know Jim Cornette, like you know like so many so many talented people who are, have been part of this business and part of this this you know uh, frankly art form for a long time. Well, yeah, and 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 one thing to add on top of that as well is that you know I think wrestling really is um, like the sport side of it is really about this like the sport or competition of charisma. Like it's yeah. it's 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 really about personalities more than it is anything. I mean, nowadays it's more based on athleticism, and maybe that's why it's not as 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 interesting as it was when we were growing up. <laughs> but you know, most of the time it's like. You like to use a wrestling term, you have to get over, which yeah. means, you know, where the audience buys into you as a personality. And so the, the way to get over more than really anything is using your charisma, your personality. And and sometimes I think there and some of the things that we investigate in on, with this series is like the effects of that. Some of these people have become the the uh, persona that they portray and their lives get intermingled with who their character is and uh, who they are in real life. So that's kind of like a really interesting crossover of performance or where people had to convince, you know, fans on the outside, like, hey, <laughs> you know, this is who I really am. You have to believe that if you ran into the person like and asked for an autograph and they were right. they were a villain character, they swatted out of your hand, you know, just to right, right. You put up be in that mode. All, all the, the time. time. One yeah. of the one of the things that I think underscores this is in the very first episode, in the Bruiser Brody episode, there were the police have these two distinct um, um, responses that are actually like opposite because it's not clear to them. So to set it up for listeners, Bruiser Brody dies uh, before a match. Um, you know, to to hear Tony Atlas say it was absolutely stabbed uh, and and had to be taken to the hospital. Um, and you should watch the the episode to see how things go and who might be uh, responsible. But early on in in the telling, some of the some of the people who were there, were like the rest, the the police showed up and thought it was a, a work. Right? The police showed up and thought like, yeah. yeah, there's blood on the ground, but this is pro wrestling. There's always blood on the ground in pro wrestling. <laughs> this dude goes from town to town and makes a big show out of how much blood he puts on the ground. You know, exactly. And then, but then later, once it became. Once the the course or the the case was in court, once things were being investigated, it went the other way, which was like, oh well, this guy's a you know a violent fighter. This guy goes from place to place and, and hurts people. So whatever happened must have happened for reasons that were about who he was, and that changes the entire outcome of the case. And that that confusion over what this type of work is is so fascinating to me yeah because you know, what gets lost in the middle is people who get hurt you know totally and family members too like yes, have to suffer, yeah, yeah, live with that. those live with those consequences and that really is something totally singular to uh wrestling i mean you don't see you know like kurt russell's not you know trying to be snake pliskin you know when he goes right, out to right. eat at cracker barrel you know it's it's like totally yeah, different yeah. so but that's what it's like that's what it's like and Back in those days. But also days. they want to go to Cracker Barrel. That's the other thing about pro wrestling, especially <laughs> of this era, is you get that vibe that is like, these are larger than life figures who also want to drink beer and eat cheese and steaks. And you yeah. know what I mean? Like they are, there is such a blue, this is a very blue collar era for the sport and for the, for the you know, for the, the industry where yeah. you had lots of people who 
were coming from, you know, uh, uh, bouncers. You know, uh, they were bouncers. They were, they were bouncers. <laughs> They're athletes who maybe had spent a few years in college football or pro football, but then didn't quite make it. Or they were, you know, bodybuilders, maybe, or they, they came from the wrong side of the track. Like all of the stories about who these people were, you can see them look to wrestling as in terms of like, here's the bright lights. I want to get there, but also what they end up falling in love with is the is the performance angle, is the charisma stuff, is the like. But that doesn't actually change their situation that much. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, none of these people got super rich on this. Well, so, you know, some of those, some of them manage their money well. I mean, you know, obviously, mm. you know, some of the bigger names I'm sure most people are familiar with. But I also wanted to answer your question too, just about yes, please, um, sorry, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, about um, like the experience of interviewing some of these guys. And yeah, um, c- this kind of comes full circle with what we're talking about is uh, Abdul the Butcher, for those who aren't familiar, like, you know, he is, uh, he's sort of billed as this, you know, uh, terrifying <laughs> person from the darkest depths of the Sudan, you know, right. even though he's really from Win- like the suburbs of Windsor, Ontario, you know? Right. Um, right. And he's Incredibly got- Incredibly soft-spoken dude. Yeah. He, like, they should put him in the new Star Wars films. He'd fit right in <laughs> with a cantina scene. Um, anyway, he has like, you know, these scars in his forehead that are so deep, you can actually stick a poker chip in it and it would stay there. Um, yeah. and anyway, so he, he's a, he's, he's, he's a, he's a, like a total carny, uh, personality. And the thing about him that was so interesting and slash also maybe a little frustrating <laughs> as a, as a, as a documentary filmmaker yeah. is that, you know, the, these guys from his era, I mean, he wrestled back in the fifties, which is hard to even compute, you know, wow. nowadays. Yeah. He's, he's been around that long is that those guys come from an era of the business where you were sworn to an oath that you would never expose the business. And this is a secret society. This is a, you know, this is, this is a, the uh, uh, Omerta of wrestling. Right, right, right. And so, so this guy literally in trying to interview him, I mean, obviously, you know, he is an intimidating person to interview and he was sizing us up the whole time, probably thought we were just a bunch of, you know, wrestling fans with the, with a handy cam, even though we have a quite the production surrounding us uh-huh. is, is, is that, you know, he, like, I, I would try to ask him these basic questions. Well, like, you know, our audience or the people watching this isn't going to know what, you know, uh, like h- how you guys get blood in a match. Like, how does that work? And he yeah. was like, Sir, I will never reveal my secrets to you, you know. And so he he was still putting up, still putting yeah. up that front, and still working in, and and that was kind of expected for us. But that didn't that facade didn't crack until we actually showed him. He's actually he he's in the Bruiser Brody episode yeah. until yeah. until until we showed him footage of Brody and we played him to old tapes and that just cracked and like the real person underneath Larry his name is Larry you know not Abdullah the butcher right it's Larry Shreve which yeah, right. is the most yeah canadian you know yeah. neighborhood name you know yeah and 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 you know and then Larry came through once like the human like he had a human emotion you know instead of just you know being putting up this threatening facade which you see in the episode did you get the impression from any of these folks? Again, you're mostly talking about people who were working in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. Um, you think about someone like Abdullah the Butcher, who is billed from the you know the the dark jungles of of Sudan, and like <laughs> it's such a, a rough era when it comes to what these gimmicks were. Many of them super xenophobic, super racist. Yep. But were you also get the other side of that, which is like you you there is the like. 
it's it was cool to watch that episode and have a lot of black folks being able to speak about their experience as pro wrestlers because you don't get that side of the story that often. Did did, right. did any of them talk about the kind of disconnect uh, around that or or even about how things have changed or about like where what they think about the product so to speak now versus this much rougher, rawer, more in in some ways like you said more charisma driven, less performance based but also less uh, produced, you know, more, less produced. Less produced and also much more reliant on these big bold stereotypes that were often kind of make it hard to go back to it with without some dose of irony or hesitation. Do you know what I mean? Did anyone talk about how that how the industry's changed? Well, yeah, I mean, most of them have and uh, you know, like for the most part a lot of them have a difficult time to like to adapt, to appreciate it. Yeah. I th- I think a lot of them want to just still be involved even if it's in the peripheral so they don't want to trash it too much. (laughs) But, you know, um, I think a lot of the guys are struggling. I know Scott Hall is one of them uh, who's also, who was also Razor Ramon or, you know, a fixture of the NWO if you were in the middle school in the Um, Mm nineties. Scott Hall, you know, you know, once said to me, we we were both at the, at the, at the all in show last year, last fall. And we were talking about, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm having a hard time with all these guys diving out of the ring and, you know, all, all this, stuff. you know, I'm trying to adapt, you know, and trying to understand it. And so, but I think in their era, they were given the opportunity to really be the, like an extension of who they really were. You know, they, they were given, right. they were given the ability to really run with things. And now that th- if you watch it now, and I'm not trying to just completely crap on it, but if, if you watch it now, it, it feels like it's, 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 it's one person's vision instead of kind of these guys being able to run with it. And there was an unpredictability, I think, in in that time when the business wasn't so heavily produced that made it exciting for people like us to watch because you really didn't know what was going to happen. And Do you so, think that comes from the kind of centralization around the WWE in, in North America where previously there were so many different territories that you couldn't have just like a single booker be that powerful that – they could decide gimmicks because a wrestler would bounce from territory to territory in the course of their career and and would often carry gimmicks with them or would shift into a new one. And that was just like what they did. I mean, honestly, I think the answer is maybe a little even more boring than that, which is Mm. as a company gets bigger, you know, it it just it just becomes a corporation. It becomes more homogenized. And one thing is, too, like in the in the 80s and the 90s, you know, people who were working behind the scenes at the WWF at the time, now it's WWE, of course, yeah. but people who are working behind the scenes, they were wrestlers at one time or involved right. in wrestling. And so the, it was all still part of that secret society. And then as the company grew, they just, you know, hired a lot more people and people who are more in the entertainment business and television production. And those people just, you know, aren't, don't have the same DNA, like carny DNA right, that, right. you know, they have now. So I think that's just a, a big symptom of it. Also, you were talking about the racial stereotypes and things like that. And obviously, you know, the world has moved on from that, you know, in a, in a much more positive way. And I think wrestling really exploited the idea of heat, you know, and like heat yeah. is heat is a wrestling term is 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 basically to get an audience fired up, uh, uh, you know, against the villain, you know, something the villain does that's so horrible and gets people to uh, really respond. And so, you know, wrestling would be as provocative as you can get with that. And I don't think that's possible in today's environment with um, not only just that society's moved on, but also the fact that, you know, this c- company is publicly traded now and, and, and there's sponsors and it's different. 
But back in those days, you know, those guys all came from that school and there was an understanding of that. And even even people who, you know, uh, you know, even African-Americans who were in wrestling or whoever, I think had an understanding of that. And there's one story that, if you don't mind me telling, I, Please. Think, it's, I think it's quite Please. fascinating. It's not in our show, um, but we but we really wanted to maybe in 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 the next season. And this is crazy. This is like insane that this actually happened, but this is to give you a little bit of an insight to what wrestling was like in the eighties. Totally. But, uh, so there was a junkyard dog, you know, who Mm -hmm. was African-American wrestler, literally the Hulk Hogan of the South. And especially for, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, lower to middle class people, he was a hero to minorities. He was a hero, you know, he was that fixture and he's an incredible talent in, in wrestling. And then his his adversaries were the fabulous Freebirds, who were this group of Southern guys, you know, who were waving a a you know Confederate Literally flag, waving around. a Confederate flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. And and that was their whole thing. That that was their gimmick, so to speak. And so th- there was this instance where Junkyard Dog and the fabulous Freebirds were really getting into it in this angle that they were doing week to week, and. Um, what happened was, is they, uh, the Fabulous Freebirds beat up Junkyard Dog and they used a piece of like magician's flash paper, which, you mm. know, just burst into flames. And that's mm. an old trick to make it look like you've blinded somebody, brother, you know? Right. And so, uh-huh. yep. so they blinded <laughs> Junkyard Dog and it just looked like this horror show. And everyone was like, oh my God, this is awful. What the hell? And the next week on TV, or actually, sorry, this wasn't on TV. Next week in the in the in the auditorium, Junkyard Dog comes out and he's got bandages over his eyes and he's got a cane and he's hobbling in the street clothes to the ring and people are crying. Oof. You know, yeah. people are just like, "Oh man, what did they do?" And you know, people are so upset. And he starts to kind of give his you know retirement speech, like you know, it's been great, you know, and everyone's crying. And all of a sudden, oh my God, here come the Confederate flag waving, fabulous Freebirds. Oh my God, what is going to happen? And so then they so then they stomp and they beat up Junkyard Dog, a, a beaten blind man, you know, in the ring. Right. And then it this is this is totally real, a hundred percent, from people who were there. Uh, there was an African-American guy in the front row who was literally dressed like, you know, D- Dolomite. I mean, this is like, you know, 1980 or this whatever. Is the, right, and yeah. he hops the uh, guardrail and gets into the ring. And he's not a plant. This is a real person. And he pulled mm-hmm. he pulled out a loaded gun and pointed it at the Freebirds and said, Yo. said, don't worry, dog, I got your back. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they literally had to defuse the situation. Uh, with the security that was there to make sure no one got shot, which thankfully nobody right. did. But, you know, even though all this is going on, Junkyard Dog is still in character. He's not breaking character. He's not breaking the fact that he can't see. So right. so this is just like, that's the world these guys come from. So, Well, this is what you mean when you talk about it being like, I mean, it's not. this isn't your term, right? But like people call it carny shit because it literally emerges from a, a particular history of carnivals and traveling performers and that sort of, like deep held the show. You can never break the sanctity of the show. You can never break that Mm -hmm. because when you do, you will lose everything. Like that was the fear, right? Like if people don't, once people don't believe what's happening in that ring, don't believe our storylines, they will stop paying attention. I'm curious Mm -hmm. for you as a fan. Like I know it's very clear. Like this is the, the 
period that that you are um, most interested in is like Mm -hmm. 70s, even pre-70s, right? But like especially (laughs) 70s and 80s, a little bit of the 90s. One of the things that happens in the 90s, you get into this in the episode of the Montreal uh, Screwjob, is the curtain call, the fourth wall is broken, people start to know, hey, this is – these people who are supposed to be enemies are secretly friends. Uh, Hey, maybe there's more to this that's on the business side. Maybe this stuff is scripted, et cetera. And today – we live in a moment where most fans, I think, understand at the very least that booking is happening, right? Yes. Uh, right. At the very least. Uh, and most of us know, many of us know, there's entire industries around those of us who pay attention to what, you know, uh, the ways in which uh, events, you know, uh, are are poorly booked, or the ways in which promos are poorly written, or the ways of, or well written, right? We talk about them in terms like promo, and we understand that they are uh, either imp- improvised based on some notes, or are written, or are you know the there there's a writing team setting up angles. Like we talk about all that stuff now, and it's still popular. So I'm curious for you, like. Wow. Kayfabe is something that they held so sacred because of a fear that once it goes away, what do you have left? But the answer seems to be, for the WWE, still a lot of success. And I'm curious what you make of that. Well, I'm going to tie it into our our show. <laughs> because Please, that's the, that's the job, right? <laughs> yeah, so, the, so um, uh, the episode that's airing this week uh, is about the Montreal Screwjob, as you said, which took place in 1997 uh, yep. between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, two of the top wrestlers at the time in the WWF. And just for listeners who may not be familiar, it's essentially like the uh, one. It's like the JFK assassination in wrestling, <laughs> where it was this it was this convergence of a real storyline and real life that took place in the middle of the ring, um, that left uh, everyone wondering what the hell is going on. It exposed the backstage. It, it, it like right. it exposed all of this. It was the it was kind of the leading thing that did that on a, on a grand scale. And so, um, so I think ever since the Montreal Screwjob, I think that fans, um, that's the moment when they realize that, hey, wait a minute, maybe what's happening backstage is possibly more interesting or just as interesting as what's Mm. happening in the ring. Because it is a crazy lifestyle that these people live. And, you know, there's so much drama surrounding that in it itself. And so I think that was kind of the moment. And to Vince McMahon, who's the CEO of the company, to his genius, he ran with that. Like he saw that as, um, and I think everybody around him did too, if if he didn't at first, which is that, you know, everything that's happening in the back is, is in it itself a story. And so that's when he himself became a character. He Like Vince McMahon, you know, you probably remember from, you know, back in the late 90s when he was the top villain persona on that oh, yeah, TV course. show. And yeah. that that didn't really happen until, you know, he became a fixture of this Montreal Screwjob incident that that uh, we cover on the show. And so, um, so, so, so I think ever since then, people have been paying attention to, you know, how the sausage is made, like how this all happens, you know, what, you know, what's happening in the back, how are these things being written, how are they put together? And, um, and that was like the, that was the gen, like the like gen one area of that. And, and the interesting thing is now it's evolved into this thing, which for me makes it hard to watch, but that's just my personal opinion, which is like when you watch WWE nowadays, and, you know, the only reaction you get from fans or media or social media or whatever 
is people just commenting on, oh, well, that's uh, why did the writers decide to do that? Right. You know, right. and, and that doesn't make it as fun because it's like, uh, these guys are just writing, you know, bad stuff or whatever, <laughs> you know. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Yeah, it, and it has been up and down forever. Like that's the thing for me is like as a so I was someone who watched it a lot as a as a kid through you know my teen years, and then I kind of went went away to college in the early two thousands. It's like the Cena and like the beginning of the you know um, uh, 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 Batista and mm-hmm. um, who's the third dude I always forget because I think he's super boring. Uh, um, Roman Reigns. No, no, pre-Roman Reigns. Oh, pre-Roman oh. Reigns. Rock? Um, nope. Uh, post-Rock, because I watched through the Rock. The Randy Orton. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Randy Orton. I think you're kind of boring. Um, but like that era like completely <laughs> lost me. I stopped watching for years, and then came back in around like the 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 early 2010s. Daniel Bryan stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know the the Shield stuff. CM stuff Punk. with CM Punk. Yeah, exactly. Those are the the kind of the people who I I, I tie my return to some of the new day stuff recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And like it is, but my interest is this sort of meta level, which is interested in what works and what doesn't. There's almost a strategy layer to it to use a video game term, right? It's like, I'm interested in it the way I'm interested in civilization game, not the way (laughs) I'm interested in like a JRPG or a fighting game. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm interested in, the the mechanics and the, the machinations you. of the business side, and that is not the same type of fandom. Um, and I, it, it is a, it is a weird thing because I don't know. You know what? What I will say is the 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 contrast to that is the the Japanese wrestling I've watched. Mm-hmm. Um, when I go and watch New Japan stuff, when I catch up on stuff, part of it is I think that the storylines are a little obliquer or a little little less. Um, you, the characters are, do feel like the wrestlers in a way that I don't always feel that that's true in the WWE right now. There is that natural extension. And then there, the performance inside the ring is also just like so much more compelling for me as a thing to watch. Yeah. And the the storytelling inside of the ring, um, is so much stronger and a lot, not, not every Japanese wrestling match ever, you know, but Mm -hmm. I don't want to paint that broad of a brush. But like when I think about, you know, the Wrestle Kingdoms I've watched and stuff like that, match after match is like, wow, there is a good story being told by, you know, hold, hold after hold in this ring, um, in the way that I, I love. Um, and so, and so I'm curious for you, like, have you tried other non WWE product, uh, these days? Are you, are you paying attention to what's happening in the, in like, the AEW's like uh, you know league that's about to start. Did you deal with any Ring of Honor stuff over the years? Did you look at you know uh, uh, something like um, God? What was the what was the name that the kind of blended name of the the league that kind of blended uh, Mexican soap opera? Uh, oh, with, Lucha Underground. Yeah, Lucha Underground. Did you yeah. watch any Lucha Underground stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, I've watched a little bit of that stuff. Um, I'm definitely paying attention now to AEW and to what, yeah. um, you know, is going on in the New Japan arena as well and that type of stuff. And that stuff's super interesting to me. I mean, I do have a little bit of a grumpy kind of viewpoint on, mm-hmm. you know, God, I wish they wouldn't do 25 super kicks in one match. And God, I yeah, wish, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. like we, we, we could, you know, just things like little picky things like that. You know, I, I have a hard time adapting with anything, but um, you know, what, what I will say is that I think that there's, this is maybe one of the more, more exciting times for wrestling. It feels mm-hmm. like it's hotter than it's been in the last few years. And I think that's mostly because, you know, AEW now has some real money behind it. They're closing in on a TV deal and this is yeah. all, we're talking about all elite wrestling and, yes, um, yeah. They have some money, they have a TV deal forthcoming, and they're really giving it a shot. And back when you and I were growing up, you know, that was one of the probably the most exciting time for wrestling because you had WCW on Mm -hmm. one channel and WWF on the other channel and they were up against each other. And it was like, what's going to happen? Which wrestler is going to go from this roster to the other roster? And it just made it exciting because there was competition and it it actually made the WWF, you know, really, you know, try and be as competitive as possible. And so, I mean, who knows if they'll have the ability to really overthrow that. But, you know, you can't discount the fact that AEW's event, which is coming up next month, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sold whatever they sold out their arena in under, you know, whatever it was like a minute or something. And now, and it could have been, and it was actually projected that they could have sold 40,000 tickets in four minutes. And so when you look at numbers like that, and those are all people who are flying in to Las Vegas for the most part, it's not local, you know? So that's like, there's some passion behind that brand. And so if they are able to keep up that momentum, I think wrestling is going to get super, super interesting again. I mean, this is the other half of this that's so weird about the, the the change in time is that when I was a kid, if you wanted to see Japanese wrestling in in where I was from, uh, in South Jersey, what I did is <laughs> I got on a bus and went to New York and had to go to a you know a store that sold that's you know amazing. F- fan subs of anime and also some wrestling tapes. That's you know, um, or I would look at you know JPEGs online and read about matches from. You know, from from the territory era, like there there was not all those angel YouTube fire now. websites. Yes, of course, know? of course. Seriously, like you know, I I was you know importing Fire Pro Wrestling games and like uh, needing to look up who each of those wrestlers was because I was like, who are these people? Like I best. know I know the one federation that they have in here that's like the fake American you know Fed, but like who are these people? Who are who is the great Muda? You know what I mean? And like mm. so looking up those things at the time was really hard. Today you can go get a, a, a you know a, a kind of a, a you can give yourself a course in international wrestling history uh, by going to YouTube. By you know, to some degree, even going onto the WWE zone stuff because they bought up so much shit. You know, <laughs> like well, yeah. you could look at a lot of old territory stuff, um, well, and that's so different than when you and I were kids watching this stuff and desperate to see more. Well, I, I, I was going to say what, what's 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 so fun is like you know you mentioned you know going to get VHS tapes, going on a mission. I did the same thing. You know, I grew up in mm-hmm. Minneapolis. And I remember literally taking the bus to the Mall of America, LOL, and going to <laughs> there used to have a kiosk there that would sell bootleg ECW. Wow. Uh, yes, VHS totally. And, yep. uh, and that's where I started to learn about a lot of those people who weren't you didn't see on TV. And, and that was right. amazing. And, um, you know, and I, I had I was such a fan as a kid. It was insane. I had I had the fortune of meeting Stone Cold Steve Austin when I was 11. 
Wow. Um, perfectly and, timed. Yeah. Oh my God. I have video of it. My dad actually video t- secretly nice. videotaped it. And I, and I, I, that was my very first wrestler interview. Cause I actually asked, I got the nerve. I worked up the nerve to ask him. And I think this is what 1998, I think. And I asked mm-hmm. him what he thought of Bill Goldberg. And I was like, you know, <laughs> who was, who was on, you know, who was part of the other program. And, yes, and, and he's yes. like, and he was like, um, well, I think he's fine at what he does, but you know, he, he's like, he's copying me, you know, a little bit, but you know, he's, he's got to make a living too, you know? And so that was just That's so funny. And that was awesome to be able to get that. You know, I could have sold that probably to Dave Meltzer. At the time. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, Meltzer would have fucking eaten it up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but anyway, what I was going to say is about YouTube. Um, you were talking about YouTube. Yeah. Um, Th- this show that w- that that we did, Dark Side of the Ring, really wouldn't have been possible without us, you know, going on these YouTube spirals. Mm. And uh, literally, you can go on YouTube and you'll see these like, you know, handy DV cam interviews shot at a Radisson hotel room, you know, with one of these old timer guys telling you a story that will, you know, you know, raise the hairs on your neck. And literally, it was like, man, these stories are insane. And mm-hmm. the whole idea for us was like, I want to take those stories and I want and and Jason and I, we want to just make the Errol Morris thin blue line version of that Radisson tape, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, mm-hmm. and put it on the biggest scale we can possibly do and make it the most cinematic. And that's why, you know, and we wanted to bring it to life with reenactments and just really that's kind of where it began. How did you get, not how did you get, but what was it like to have some of the, because you end up with with some archival footage I haven't seen before. You end up with access to interviews to people who I didn't know were going to give interviews about some of these topics, mm-hmm. um, uh, providing some perspectives that we haven't heard before. Right. Um, I'm curious, like kind of two things. One, were there restrictions? Were there like, how many times did you hit a dead end because the WWE stepped in and said, no, you can't do this or because a federation or a territory, you know, owner like has disappeared. You just literally cannot find the information anymore. And then when you did find that stuff, how hard was it not to be like, how hard was it to keep a straight face when someone told you something that you didn't know before? Well, I mean, basically, the I mean, it, it was challenging across the board in terms of, you know, having very limited access to some archival footage, which mm. was one of the reasons why we kind of went with the reenactment uh, approach. Was right, which we should talk about, of, actually, a little um, bit, because because I think that that's something that when you first pitched me the show, you were like, we're doing reenactments. And I was like, Evan, what are you, <laughs> Evan, what are you, you're doing reenactments. And then you showed me what you meant. And I got, oh, OK. Can you explain what those are for, for like how sure. you shot them or not how the how the crew shoots them and how, how you kind of imagine them? Yeah, well, the whole thing, the whole thing came about with like, um, well, obviously, you know, you see reenactments in like, you know, forensic files shows and, the, and unsolved mysteries, which we're mm-hmm. huge, a huge fan of. But you see those kind of reenactments and they're cheesy and like, you know, they're trying to be period and they don't get things right. And we mm-hmm. didn't we didn't want to approach it in that way because I think it would just oh, it would it would it would kill it, you know. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to try and do something more trippy and have it be more like interpretive where what we did is we shot all the reenactments on a black soundstage, essentially. And we uh, made it look very dreamlike, where everyone's soft focus and it's hard lighting. It looks very noirish, and it, it doesn't mm-hmm. look really anything like what it really would have looked like. <laughs> but right, no, it's it's you're not going for for realism here. You're no. not like you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dogma ninety five version of a reenactment, which would also exactly. be kind of interesting, maybe. But totally. But what <laughs> but what we decided to do is we wanted it to kind of 
be like a vessel for storytelling. And so people, when they're watching it, they can kind of fill in the blanks. And the cool effect that it sort of has is like, since most of these stories are over 25 years ago, for the most part, 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, it kind of has this effect where it's like, this is what's inside the interview subject's mind uh, as they're recalling the story. So it's almost like it acts like a faded memory is kind of what we, that's like what we're aesthetically Mm -hmm. going for Mm -hmm. versus, you know, so it's kind of like we're in their head and we get to hear them as we're watching it. Um, and so that was the, that was the idea. Um, and, um, it, it basically (laughs) was born out of Jason and I filming slow-mo Instagram videos with our action figures (laughs) and, uh, just not, not for any other reason than these are cool, man, you know? And, and, and that, and they were like, whoa, we should do these with actors and we can make it look just as cool. And, (laughs) you know, and that, and that's how, that's how it came about. Um, cool. But so to get back though to Sorry, the yeah. question of access, no, I that was me. I was like, oh wait, we should talk about reenactments because <laughs> it's such an important part of the show, mm-hmm. which it is. Um, but yeah, can you talk again about hitting those dead ends and then the other half of that, which is like when you finally get that nugget of information or mm-hmm. you get access to something that you didn't think would be possible? Yeah. So um, you know, some of these stories, like like we were talking about, have like you know real life consequences, and there are family members who's who've endured yeah. who've endured tragedy on uh, an astronomical scale. And um, so that being said, like you know, it, it was a process of you know earning their trust. We definitely wanted to appear as genuine as possible. We're not just wrestling fans with cameras, you know, not to put down wrestling fans, but I'm just saying like, you know, um, you know, we have everyone's best interest in mind. We're, we're giving them the platform to tell their story. And so mm-hmm. it, 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 it sort of was a process to just develop a relationship with some of these people. Um, and also similarly with wrestlers who, who, who don't want to be as forthcoming or as honest with us. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, let's, 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 um, yeah, earn that trust, you know? And so, right. But to answer your question more directly about like, you know, there were a lot of moments where um, in the show, even in, in the, I won't spoil it, but even in the Montreal Screwjob episode, there's somebody, you know, and, and, and to be clear, the Montreal Screwjob story is something that has been chronicled many, mm-hmm. many, many, many times. But there's one person in our show who kind of, you know, drops a pipe bomb about a piece of information that's never been out there before. And mm-hmm. that was kind of, and I didn't even know that was coming. And that was something that was, you know, really exciting to us, you know, as, as fans and as nerds of all this stuff. And, mm-hmm. um, and then there's like, as you get into stories where, you know, you're talking about something that is a homicide or you're talking about something that is a, a, a really deeply rooted controversy and someone decides to open up with you, you know, open up to you and, you know, drop something really vulnerable and emotional. And it's like, wow. I mean, there, there, there's so many times on the show that we cried, <laughs> you know, right. there are so many times where Jason and I just as, you know, emotional wrestling fans, like, you know, especially in the Von Erich episode, which is yeah. uh, an episode um, about a family that has endured, you know, relentless tragedy one after the other. They're, they were like a wrestling dynasty family. Um, and that to us, just having, you know, that family member open up to us and kind of tell us the story of what he's really been through. I mean, it was really hard not to cry and and to be that. So I mean, we had all those experiences and, and that, and that brought us closer with some of these people to be able to kind of share, share that with them, you know, in a way. So it is, it is a very deeply passionate show for us and, you know, in, in, in terms of getting the opportunity to make this. You, you mentioned a moment ago that there were times when it was clear that like you had to really get someone in on your side, you know, and, and convince, or just to convince them to like to trust you and open up about stuff. Yeah. 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 The, the other angle that, that I'm kind of curious about is like, Pro wrestlers are performers, and 
uh, especially a lot of the folks you talked about and, and talked to are people who have, you know, larger than life personas who have been in and out of character their whole lives. Did you ever get the the vibe? And you talked about, you know, Abdullah before, but like besides him, were there moments when you were like, mm, I don't know if I buy this story. I, I can I can feel that you're putting it on here a little bit. Um, yes. Or, or was it was it okay? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, what do you do in that scenario when you're like, well, we got all this footage, mm, ha, mm, but like you're not here to editorialize. In you are obviously are editorializing. You're editing this work. You're putting their words in in, in you know relation to footage and reenactments and stuff. But what do you do when someone gives you a line and you're like, uh, mm, this doesn't add up? Yeah. So. Um so uh, I think my the, the example that's coming to mind, and again, this is somebody that I respect and like as a person, but uh, Scott Hall, you know, aka Razor Ramon, um, mm-hmm. you'll which something that you'll see in the Montreal Screwjob episode. Not to not to not to spoil it, but I think it's important. You know, whatever, it's not a spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. Scott Scott believes or is telling me that he believes that the Montreal Screwjob incident was all orchestrated, and everyone who is part of it. And and mm. who has participated in it? Participated in it uh, is all in on it, and this is all just some masterminded plan. Which, when you see in the episode, no, there's a whole kind of Ocean's Eleven type, you know, situation going on in the background. You know, that was very real. So um, when he told me that, and I was like, whoa, yeah. you know, like how? Because he's he's best friends with Shawn Michaels, one of the one of the people who you know, is, 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 a, yes. is, a, is a participant. Like, they're, they're close friends. So what does that mean? That means that you guys have never talked about this and you think your best friend's lying about it? And, right. <clears throat> and then when he told me that, which I think is super interesting, it's kind of like, am I getting worked? Are you right. doing that for me? Right. Are you working everybody else? Like, what's going on here? You know? Right. <laughs> or, or did he work himself up, right? You know, is that is that like, did he work? Is he bought in? So like, what, what happened? Like, True. how could Scott Hall not know? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, I, it doesn't make any sense, really. But, mm. you know, it, it is interesting. And, um, you know, uh, some people who know that Scott Hall's in the episode, I mean, the episode, as we're talking now, hasn't aired yet. But people who know that Scott's in the episode are are, are, are kind of like uh, sort of being like, well, why did they put him in the episode? Why why is that in there? You know, it's not it's not truthful. Right, right. It's not a truthful aspect to it. But you have to see the larger picture, you know, him, mm-hmm. him thinking this thing is, is all hundred percent fake or this thing was, this wasn't, this was a scripted thing that is, a, you know, just speaks larger to the meta-ness of all of this stuff and yeah. why it's all insane. And, you know, it's just, yeah, what? Totally. so, so, so that was, that, that's an example that really comes to mind. Um, obviously there's other examples which aren't as extreme where we interviewed a wrestler and they didn't want to reveal how something was done. Um, and my favorite instance of that is we interviewed this female wrestler named um, Princess Victoria um, mm-hmm. in the fabulous Moolah episode, which is the season finale episode. And this was like one of the stories I'm so sad was not in the episode. We were just we just couldn't fit it in. But um, I think it's interesting just to kind of give some historical context. Yeah, yeah, so I'd love to hear it. So Princess Victoria was um, this female wrestler late seventies, early eighties in the Portland territory. And she literally is one of the more intense interviews that we have in the entire show. Like she is just a character through and through. Um, and she's seen it all. She's been, in, she's seen all the highs and the lows. Um, and anyway, she told us this story where she was involved in a match with a man. This was an intergender match, which is something mm-hmm. you never saw back then. 
Um, and so the the whole story going into the match is that the man was basically saying, oh, you know, women don't belong in this. You know, they, you know, all the all the salacious stuff, like, you know, ah, they belong in the kitchen and blah, blah, all yeah, that yeah. terrible stuff. Again, again, all that that cheap heat from cheap heat. Yeah, yeah, totally. Cheap heat. And then she's like, you know, well, you know, F you, you know, I, you know, like, me, you know, I can do anything a man can, you know, and that was the idea. So they go into the match and, you know, so so she's up against Buddy Rose, who is the heel or the, the villain in the match. And she's, you okay. know, the hero. And so there, there's, there's, there's a spot in the match where Buddy Rose literally takes her and throws her head into a brick wall. And the audience is just like, oh, my God, you know, holy shit, you know. And then she emerges. uh, She stands up and she her whole face is covered in blood. And that's, you know, something. Imagine seeing that. That would be insane to see Mm -hmm. that. And of course, the blood that she has is, you know, from a self-inflicted wound, you know, in secret that no one can see as part of the show. Right. And because uh, that's what these people actually did. If you don't, if you're not familiar, <laughs> they would pull out razor blades from razor blades. Yeah, hit, yeah, yeah. Hit, hit get some red. Yeah, and like, hit, hit, like they would hide razor blades in their under in their wrist under, tape, right? Wrist under tape their tongues, or, which is the yep. craziest one. Yeah, yeah, that feels dangerous. That feels dangerous to me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that I would put a. I uh, don't think so. A, a razor blade <laughs> under my tongue so that I could cut my forehead with it to make it look like <laughs> someone had drawn blood. Yeah, if that wasn't a reason enough for us to do the show, then I don't know what it is. But anyway, right. so <clears throat> so anyway, so so she's she she emerges with blood on her face, like she's covered in blood. The audience is freaking out. Now her brother was in the audience, and when he saw this. She didn't smarten up her own brother to how the wrestling business worked. Okay. Mm. So her brother was like, oh my God, this guy is killing my sister. And so he ran over the railing and he went to, stood right over her to protect her and, you know, to protect her from this wrestler and was like, right. You know, get, get out of here. Like, you know, like get off my sister, you dweeb, you know, whatever, you know? And then, Uh and then, and then security rushed him out of the room, obviously, or rushed him out of the arena and the match continued or whatever. And then after the match, she goes down to the locker room and and all the boys in the locker room are just like, oh, my God, that was amazing. Who was that? And right. um, they're like, well, uh, that was my brother. And all the <laughs> dudes thought it was so cool that she didn't smarten up the audience mm. to how this stuff works, that it was like immediate mad respect. And she told us in a very emotional way as a as a female wrestler, one of the or the top accolade you can really get, especially at that time, more specifically at that time, in that time. Yeah. yeah was yeah. The, was for the guys to consider you one of the boys. And that was the moment where they embraced her as just who really who she was, you know, is that, 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 that she had so much respect for the business, which was amazing. And so she told that story and, and that was just amazing. But she, when I, when she told us this story to back to your point, is I was like, okay, okay, that's amazing. Oh my god! But then, can you just explain how the blood thing works? You know, so because uh-huh. people might not know. And she's like, I will not do that. <laughs> and 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 she was like, there is no way I will do that. You know. And uh, and then I was like, really? Like you and Abdul the butcher? And she's like, God bless you, Abby. You know. And she's right, all right. about like, <laughs> yeah. oh, well, she- that's like one of the things. It's like <sighs> it's there's a degree to which something like that. It's like asking a magician to tell their magic trick, but like at the same time, she's telling you a story that recognizes and talks about the fact that it is scripted, that she wasn't ever really in that sort of danger, right. that her brother was re- – you know what I mean? Like the story is about her refusal to break kayfabe 
And yet, this this is still a step too far for her. So sacred is this thing, and that that is super fascinating. I think that's the other half of this. That I think I like a lot is just the hearing you know hearing them talk about like oh yeah we woke up we went to the to the gym to get you know to to work out in the morning that we were gonna go get breakfast or you know seeing <laughs> uh the ribero jackets like all of the stuff that is like here is the family of wrestling this is here is the stuff that is behind closed doors that is just about the day-to-day routine yes of wrestling yep. is so cool and again it's you didn't set out to make a series that was like let me give you a tour of pro wrestling and it's a dark show. It's a tragic show. It's a show about tragedy through and through, but also is to, to do that effectively. You have to show what the life was like, um, both in, in its highs and its lows. And I think it would have been easy to make a show that only lingers on the low. And so to, right. to hit those high points, it was really important and really good. So yeah. Congrats. Yeah. Thank uh, you. I hope, I hope, I, I mean, you already have a great review from the rock, uh, <laughs> which, Crazy. That, was that a thing you expected at all? Or did you, did you, I mean, that's actually a real question. Is like, what did you think the the worker side of this and the corporate response to this would be from the WWE, from from wrestlers? Well, I don't have the WWE response yet, but hmm. the, um, the 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 response from wrestlers thus far who aren't involved in the project. Like The right. Rock, as you mentioned. I mean, that... Right, that, The Rock says, by the way, the, the Rock says, highly recommend a gripping docu-series at Dark Side of the Ring on Vice. Hits home for me, as all these tragic stories are from pro wrestlers who my grandfather, my dad, and myself have all wrestled and become friends with over the years. Kudos to the filmmakers. A captivating watch. The Rock said that about the thing you made. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's, it's pretty good. That that blew me away. Obviously, I remember I was in the grocery store and I was like, and I, and I looked at my notifications and it was like, The Rock has mentioned or Dwayne The Rock Johnson has mentioned <laughs> you on Twitter, and I was just like, What the hell? And <clears throat> that was amazing to me. Obviously, it's super validating, and like I was like, you know, it's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially to think like I remember I was eleven or twelve years old. Um, and my dad took me to a WWF match, and The Rock was there. This is back when he was a bad guy. And I remember mm-hmm. screaming so loud at the top of my lungs, like, Rocky, you suck. And then the whole auditorium started with the Rocky sucks chant. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And to think like 21 years later, you know, this guy or whatever it is, right. he would put me over, you know, is <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. yep. amazing. And um, so that was incredible. Obviously, the Hulk Hogan interaction, too, was 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 amazing. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. I, I missed it. No, I did not see this one. Oh, it's pretty funny. Um, Hulk, you know, Hogan was um, he was a little upset at uh, the, the fact that his ex-wife Linda is in the episode, which I can totally oh. understand. I, I, you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, um, I'm sure that brings up a lot of old wounds for him, but he said, sure. he said, he said in, in a tweet, well, first he, he, he quoted it as five out of 10 really good, which is my okay. favorite review. Um, but, <laughs> but he, he said that, you know, we should have gotten the facts straight and, 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 and stuff like that. And they, and they yeah. should have checked all their sources. And so I just casually responded from the show's Twitter and just said, you know, thanks for watching. I really appreciate that you watched it. 
Um, but you know, we did ask you to be part of the show of and, and you did uh-huh. decline. <laughs> and God. so, uh, that kind of was a little, that, that was the mm-hmm. thing that day on, on wrestling Twitter. But, um, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. If you would have told like the 11 year old me who was playing, you know, WCW versus NWO revenge on yep. 64, like with all of these guys, like wrestling with right. all these guys right. that like, they would all be like, you know, throwing down on the show is, is surreal, completely surreal. So that's amazing, you know. Totally, totally. Well, again, congrats. I, I wish we one. I wish we were still streaming games more often because I really wish the next time you were in town, you could come through. We could play some WCW NWO Revenge we have or to. some, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we break out. Uh, WrestleMania 2000. There's all sorts of stuff that we we could have played from that era. Fire Pro. Listen, I, oh, I'll bring yeah. out my Dex Drive. I'll load my old creative wrestlers. Oh, that's um, awesome. Dude, it was so cool. Uh, but we're not streaming right now. So, but I, I don't know. If you're next time you're in New York, you have to ping me and let me know so that we can see if we can make something happen there. I'll be back um, in a few weeks, man. Let's awesome, man. Cool. Hit me yeah, up. Yeah. Uh, Evan, thank you so much for coming on. Again, people can watch Dark Side of the Ring uh, on Viceland. Is it, is it every Wednesday at 9 Eastern? Is that right? It is every Wednesday at 9 uh, on Viceland, 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. So it's not Pacific. the same time. Okay. Uh, gotcha. But yeah, you can watch it on Viceland. You can also watch it on Viceland.com the day after it airs. So they're they're, they're actually cool. just putting them all up there, which is so cool. For free? Totally for free? F- totally for free. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So well, check those out. Yep. They are really good. Um, there are six episodes this season. Uh, again, those stories are, uh, range all over the place. Um, I, I definitely think it's worth checking them out. So so please go do that. Where can people find you and the show on Twitter? I am at <clears throat> at Evan Husney, which uh, is E V A N H U S N E Y uh, on Twitter. Uh, me personally, and the show is at Dark Side of Ring on Twitter and at Dark Side of the Ring on Instagram. And you can get awesome. us there. We put out tons of clips and tons of weird stuff all the time, so you can get us there. Rad. Well, congrats again. Again, it's wild for me to having like sitting in the lobby of a vice land or going out for coffee and hearing you go, I really want to do this. We're shooting this pilot for this thing wrestling. I think there's some good stories to tell. (laughs) And it's so rad to see it go to where it's been, Evan. Thank you so much for coming through. Thanks, man. All right. As always, you can follow everything we do here at Waypoint, twitter.com slash Waypoint, facebook.com slash Waypoint Vice. You can follow everything we do, waypoint.vice.com. Find me on the internet at Austin underscore Walker over on Twitter. We'll be back with more Waypoint Radio later this week. Peace. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.